0: Um, My name is Tim Power, I'd like to welcome you to the Latin American General Seminar Series for Michaelmas Term 2013. This is the first of eight weeks of seminars that we'll have on Tuesday evenings at five o'clock. The first two weeks, we're going to do something a little bit of a departure from previous practice and having panels uh, rather than single speakers, and tonight we couldn't think of a better topic than the one that Ellen and Kath proposed to us, which is, to observe the 40th anniversary of the coup d'état in Chile in September 1973 which as you know was a seminal event not only in the country but also in the Americas and in the context of the Cold War. It has many layers of content that we're going to explore tonight. And we have a very good panel uh, to um, treat us to this analysis. First we have uh, Alan Angel uh, former director of this center and a fellow emeritus of St. Anthony's College, we have Kath Collins, professor of transitional justice at the University of Ulster, formerly of Diego Portales in Santiago, and then we have a, a special guest. He's special to me because he was my dissertation advisor. <laughs> Once a student, always a student. <laughs> uh, this is Scott Mainwaring from the University of Notre Dame, who will be spending uh, the academic year in London with the Notre Dame London Center and will be visiting us on several occasions. So it's a real pleasure to have Scott here. And it's also really nice to welcome our guests from CAF, the Latin American Development Bank. who are here. And all of you students and faculty who are here for the first time uh, this evening. Especially Dave Doyle, who's wearing a tuxedo, because uh, he didn't get the memo about the dress code. (laughs) So uh, we've lost a few minutes with the seating issues. I think we should jump right into it. I'd like to turn it over to uh, Alan Angel. Thank you. Kat and I have
1: chosen specific topics to talk about, but if there are more broad and general questions you want to ask about Chile, about the time of Pinochet, or indeed afterwards, I mean, please do so. Um, It's very difficult, obviously, to think of what topics to talk about. I'm talking about the international dimensions of the coup, uh, and I think there are four good reasons for choosing this topic. One is that the coup in Chile received absolutely unprecedented unprecedented attention from the international community, uh, much more than any other coup in Latin America. Uh, uh, and not just that, but it wasn't just a, a reaction at the time of the coup, it persisted right up until uh, the time of the plebiscite in 1988. So there was constant, constant support for the Chilean democratic opposition, constant, constant criticism of the Pinochet regime.
0: <laughs>
1: this is a very amazing moment in the development of socialism in the European left, uh, and they, in many countries, thought what lessons were there for, from the Chilean experience for their own countries. So there really was a kind of process of internal, like, absorption of what was happening in Chile, an attempt to rethink, to should we need to rethink our strategies. In many cases they did. In Italy you had the historic compromise between the Christian Democrats and the, and the Communist Party in France, the French, and the Communist Socialist Alliance. So the, the Chilean coup had quite an impact on politics in European countries. <clears throat> the third point is that the opposition depended very, very largely, almost exclusively for the first ten years on international support. Uh, uh, Afterwards, things changed slightly, but for a long time, politics in Chile, politics about Chile was conducted not in Chile, but in various countries in the world, mostly in European capitals. Uh, And of course, this experience of being abroad led Chileans themselves to reflect on what did we do wrong? What should we do in future to assure that this doesn't happen again? So it really was an extraordinarily important insertion into the international context. Now what explains this unusual reaction? Well, obviously the India experiment, one to create a socialist society using constitutional means, precisely answered the question, or asked the question rather, that affected many European countries, and other (coughs) countries in different parts of the world. Can you actually make a, a, a radical transformation of society without infringing the rule of law. That was the kind of question that it, it, it posed, and that was one of extreme interest, in a sense, to many other countries in the world. You also have to remember that the international context of the time, uh, the late 1960s, 1970s, was a time of international ferment in, in many countries. You had the student movements in 68, which had an enormous impact, obviously, in France. <coughs> you had the anti-Vietnam War uh, protests in the United States. Uh, You had the urban guerrilla movement initially in Germany, and you had the rejection of the USSR after the invasion of Czechoslovakia. So it was a a very favorable time for the Chilean experience to have some kind of international context. An important point, too, I think, is that there was a great deal of sympathy for Chile, not just because it was a, a leftist experiment, but also because it was a democratic country. So many people who were not socialists, not necessarily interested or or sympathetic to their, again, uh, experience, uh, really wanted to express their concern for the the tragic way in which democracy uh, ended. Sorry if I'm speaking too fast, but there's a limitation of time. One other uh, novel aspect of the Chilean coup is, in some ways it was the first coup played out for television and for the press. And it produced a series of photographs that were reproduced all over the world. So the point of showing these photographs is not that they simply represent what happened, but that they were seen by millions of people uh, throughout the world. They had an enormous impact. This is one of the, uh, the, the soldiers surrounding the um, presidential palace, uh, La Moneda, in the central, center of um, Santiago. Uh, that's one of the La Moneda on flames after the, whole, uh, the jets had actually been successful. Uh, in um, bombing the place and causing the suicide of Allende. <clears throat> uh, that's not very clear photograph, but it's one of books being burnt in the streets. Uh, can you make anything more reminiscent of what the Nazis did uh, in Germany at the time uh, than burning books? And this is where they burnt books as well, uh, in Chile. <clears throat> uh, that's this kind of emblematic photograph of General Pinochet, wearing dark glasses, his public relations officer told him to take him off in future, <laughs> surrounded by other members of the, of the Junta and his uh, aide-de-camp. Obviously, it was a photograph that, in a way, so sort of symbolized, if you like, the kind of hard-faced uh, 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 perspectives of, of the, um, the general. This, again, is an extraordinarily moving photograph. <clears throat> many prisoners were taken to the National Stadium, where many were brutally tortured uh, and, uh, uh, and killed, uh, including, of course, the famous focusing of Victor Hara. Uh, and this photograph is not just, the photograph is also that it was televised. Why the military allowed this to happen, I can answer as a question afterwards, if you like. Uh, and finally, oh no, that's another photograph uh, of the soldiers again advancing towards uh, uh, um, La Moneda. Uh, and with, you can see some of the people they have arrested there lying down on, on the street. Uh, And that's an image not from 73 but from 76. It was the car in which Orlando Letelier, a former socialist minister of Allende, his car was blown up in the middle of Washington. The Pinochet regime reached not only into repression in Chile, it also exercised repression abroad and assassinated one of Chile's leading opposition politicians. Um, Now, what was interesting, what was unusual about the Chilean uh, coup and the reaction? of the regime was, it practiced exile on an enormous scale. Rather than keeping people in Chile uh, exiled, at least 200,000 people, we don't have enough data to be accurate about it, but most of the political leadership, if they hadn't been caught, or if they were deemed not important enough, uh, were exiled. So, in a way, the the whole political um, scenario of the left and the center for that matter, in some cases, shifted abroad. Now, this was a kind of short-term measure that the regime uh, undertook in order not to have to deal with the people abroad, but in a way it backfired because, of course, the first thing that the external communities did was to organize, uh, in various countries, uh, activities to uh, oppose the, uh, the, the regime. And were very active in institutions like the UN or the European Parliament. And, of course, funding came for these organizations on a very generous scale. So the trade union movement uh, in exile, and indeed the very uh, feeble one that remained in Chile, was basically financed from abroad. You had a whole host of academic institutes, such as the one in Rotterdam, the most well-known Institute for Study of New Chile, which just kept on producing important critiques of the regime, uh, analyzing what was happening, giving help to other refugee groups you had a, a very famous journal called Chile-America, published in Rome, and there was also funding for two radio stations in Chile, Cooperativa or Radio Chilena, <clears throat> which had to be very, very careful in what they said, but were able to produce some kind of anti-dictatorship uh, sentiment. Uh, what was very important for the whole process was the role played by the Catholic Church. Uh, the Catholic Church created an institution called the Vicaria de la Solidaridad, which has no parallel really in any other country. (coughs) Uh, It was enormously important in giving aid to people who were imprisoned, to people who were destitute, people whose rights were being abused. In the first four or five years, it dealt with something like uh, three quarters of a million Chileans received help from the Vicaria. Uh, And this institution was funded very, very largely from abroad. Uh, The the various Catholic organizations gave something like $80 million (coughs) to the the vicaria uh, in the first four or five years. And then another 20 million came from other groups later on. Of course parties were also dependent on funding from abroad, uh, although it's rather secretive, we don't know many of the the details, but clearly party activity was basically uh, uh, possible abroad because of help from the Christian Democratic National, the Socialist International, and so on. It's very difficult to get the figures. I tried hard on this to work out how much went. Uh, at least after in the 1980s, I calculated something like $55 million a year uh, went into uh, support for the opposition either in Chile or outside Chile. And of the various research institutes, at least 95% of their budget came from abroad. Um, uh, even, even, even in Britain, which is not normally very keen on supporting these sorts of groups, uh, we raised over 11 million pounds uh, over a 10 year period to bring over a thousand uh, Chilean academics. Uh, the, the US government was inclined initially to be very favorable to uh, uh, the Pinochet regime, um, but certainly organizations in Chile, NGOs, Ford was very active uh, in providing uh, support. I think what's interesting, as I've said before, is that not, this wasn't some kind of initial reaction. It lasted all the way and hardly ceased Uh, in its um, uh, volume, if you like, intensity, until the plebiscite of 88, which of course we're showing the film tomorrow. The the effect on the coup, the effect on on the parties. Now, this is um, quite complicated. Obviously, the parties, in a way, were based abroad, and where they were located very much influenced what kind of lessons they uh, they drew, how it affected their, their policies and the changes in policies. Uh, this then helped in a sense to uh, intensify initially the divisions on the left. If you were in the social democratic Europe, the, the socialist party in Chile, which was a very left-wing party, tended to move from, if you like, Lenin towards Gramsci, became very much more interested in the possibilities of the free market, of use of the market, and the virtues of political compromise. So the, the, the insertion, if you like, into political debate uh, in France, in Italy, plus extended Britain, Uh, and Germany, uh, was a change of attitude of left-wing parties towards, if you like, forgetting the debate about who left responsible for the coup to moving much more to one with what can we do in future to ensure that it doesn't happen again. Uh, This has also happened, by the way, to a lot of the Chileans who were in Venezuela, which also, at that stage time at least, um, uh, emphasized the virtue of political compromise. Exiles in the uh, countries of the uh, USSR or East Germany tended to be rather more consistently loyal to their belief in the correctness of the UP UP policies uh, and budged very little in terms of making any um, uh, concessions towards parties in the center. Uh, It was very difficult for parties to operate in Chile. uh, the, the Chilean government, um, in a way, had ceased its sort of period of violent repression after seventy six but it was an extraordinarily effective institution of, if you like political control. I think of it a bit like the Stasi in eastern Germany. Everybody was implicated in some way or another. nobody knew what was happening you didn 't know if your neighbor was an informer. it really was a society which you didn 't talk uh, for fear of what might happen the consequences. So, obviously, it's very difficult then for parties to operate uh, clandestine, in clandestine. The one party that did manage it better than the others, more organised, was the Communist Party, which actually moved, towards, in a sense, uh, towards uh, advocating violence to overthrow the Pinochet regime, uh, and they were involved in the, uh, uh, um, the unsuccessful attempt to assassinate Pinochet in 1986. I was there at that time, not involved in the coup. <laughs> I don't have to add. But if really, if you think of it, in terms of a kind of collective panic on that day, it seemed difficult to imagine how much the, the kind of drama was loaded uh, at that time. <clears throat> and of course, when international communism collapsed with the collapse of the Berlin Wall, that led to further rethinking on the left. Christian Democrats suffered much far fewer exiles than the other parties, who were very heavily influenced by the German. Christian Democrats, Chancellor Cole, towards again, let's thinking about making an alliance with the, um, with the, with the other parties. How much time have I got?
2: Seven
1: minutes. Yeah. Okay. Um, now, it, it, in a way, one tells the coup from the story of the left and those who suffered. But there's also the story of the right as well, uh, and often this is far less discussed and treated. <coughs> now, um, it's, also, it's difficult to know how far the right was actually affected by the international um, environment. My theory is, and I don't really have an, a huge amount of evidence for it, is that the, 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 the constant, the consistent international condemnation of the Pinochet regime, it was the country most debated and condemned in the European Assembly Parliament for ten years or so uh, tended to um, to fix the hardliners in a very defensive and aggressively defensive position. Now, I'm not saying that there were softliners in the regime that were interested in uh, compromise, but things did change after '83 when the protest movement started. But I think that kind of of, of, of uh, in constant condemnation did tend to. Uh, make the military believe in, in the virtues of its own policies it and standing alone. But also, of course, they weren't short of money. If there was international condemnation politically, there was no shortage of funds going in. So while the regime, in a way, both hardened domestically and politically, uh, it flourished economically, thanks to all the international loans going in to, to uh, uh, many, of course, from European countries. So, in a way, the international involvement, I think, helped to create a kind of polarized Chile It would have been polarized anyhow, but it intensified this polarization, which can can persist to the present day. You can even see it in the current presidential campaign, where there's a long debate about who (coughs) voted yes and who voted no in the plebiscite of 1988. Your attitude towards Pinochet still is very important uh, in the kind of uh, composition of Chilean politics at the present time. I think it's important to realize that if the, if the left thought it had moral certainties on its side, so did the right. Uh, the Chilean right is very unusual and very different from the right in many Latin American countries. Much more ideological, much more convinced of the certainties of its views, and of course it has very substantial support. Uh, the right won 43% in the plebiscite in 1988. That was not, not produced by fraud and intimidation, more or less it was an accurate reflection of that support, uh, and, and, and the right really believed that Pinochet had created a much firmer and better institutional and constitutional order. It, it, it wasn't simply a kind of kleptocracy as in some Central American constitutional dictatorships or uh, uh, stupidly arrogant like the, the Argentine one. It's a very clever dictatorship in many ways, and it created a, a mass support of loyalty to it, reflected in the existence of the UDI Party, uh, the Democratic Independent Union, Party, which is extremely ideological, very influenced by Opus Dei, news of Christ, uh, 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 far on the right on social issues and so on, but the most important party in Chile. So obviously, you know, the, the in, in a way, the, the memory of this this regime uh, doesn't only persist on the left; it also persists on the right, but in a very different way. Now, <clears throat> when you had the plebiscite in '88, then. It was much more than a simple response, yes or no, for Pinochet to have eight more years. It, it, it really symbolized in the sense of the division of Chile into two parts. Uh, it was a question really about your attitude towards the coup and towards the dictatorship. You were for it if you voted for Pinochet, you were against it if you voted for, for Aylwin. Now it's quite clear that the right and the left have converged in many ways since the coup, sorry, since the return to democracy, of economic and social policy, sometimes it's difficult to tell them apart. But on this particular issue and on human rights, there really is a kind of still a, a very uh, a deep division. Now, I've talked entirely about the international context and I don't want to exaggerate its importance and imply this was the determining factor in the structure of Chilean politics. Um, the real basis of opposition to any dictatorship must come from internal uh, activities, not from outside. And in a way, the real breakthrough occurred with the mass protests in 1988, started initially by the copper unions, but then taken up by people at um, the large, starting the famous Castrol assaults, you know, beating of the saucepans outside. So it, this was not really funded from abroad, not influenced by abroad, these were ordinary people taking to the streets. Um, and indeed, also, when the politicians at last came together to make some kind of agreement in 85-86, Uh, Again, the pressures, I think, were largely internal. But the fact that the parties still existed were able to act owed a substantial amount to the fact they had had so much support in the dark years of the um, Pinochet period. Now, there's always a a problem when you're looking at international influences is how far it's conditional. How far does it distort what's actually happening in other countries? Are these (laughs) foreign countries... Someone collapsed. The the, the views of the external donors are being imposed uh, on the uh, the country. I think this is not really the case in Chile. There were problems, I think. The fact that trade unions were financed by two very different ideological camps led to an important division in the trade union movement, uh, which was very difficult to overcome. But but not a great deal, I think, of how like this happened. The, the map created in 89 basically remains the same one today. So I think, in, in, in really, in in final word, really what you have, in a sense, is a kind of uh, uh, symbiosis between the aims of those people supporting Chile from abroad and those working for Chile from within. Uh, it, it really helped, I think, a great deal to, to allow the possibility for democratic forces to remain alive become institutionalized, it also affected the way that they saw the future as well. So in that case, I think it is really rather um, a positive experience uh, of international involvement in the politics of a Latin American country.
0: Thank you very much, Alan. Um, now we're going to turn to Professor Kath Collins from University of Ulster.
3: Thanks. Yeah, can we swap Give it a second, we'll
1: Great.
3: Thanks very much um, to him and to the the centre for this invitation. I have to say I feel woefully unprepared, partly because I always do in the presence of Professor Angel, who uh, not least um, being the leading English language expert, until he had the dubious... British. Not a <laughs> well, certainly do primary. <laughs> <laughs> well, welcome. Thank you. had the dubious pleasure of being the examiner of my PhD, so he used to correct <laughs> <read laughs> my minor and m- more major mistakes. I do a but it's also because although I, I did I started thinking way back in the summer about what to say at this event, I, I I'm not unprepared in that sense, I decided that, that the thing the obvious thing to do was having spent July through September in Santiago, observing and taking part in the 40th anniversary commemorations, then all I would have to do is to come here and explain them. And I was there and I did observe and I did take part, but I am frankly quite at a loss to explain what went on. I think a lot of of extremely unexpected, certainly for me, very intense and symbolically loaded um, series of events crammed into really a six week span. And I think possibly um, we'll see very significant in shaping, particularly, the future of the political right in Chile. But so rather than trying to explain what's to me still inexplicable, I think the best I can do is to, to show and tell and hope that we can help each other explain it. Um, Alan and um, Scott and author Hugo Francesca and others who were there, you know, help me out. I, I hope that we, we, you have more idea than I maybe about what, how to explain what it was that we saw. Just the background to what I'm going to say is the work of something called the Human Rights Observatory, which is really a transitional justice observatory, but that term is not one that that makes much sense to you until you spend your life explaining what it is you do. Uh, That's really just been mapping truth and justice and memory developments in Chile since 2008. And we launched the relevant chapter of an annual university human rights report in Chile on the 10th of September, which itself became part of the story and and is the backdrop to to what I'm going to present. And a lot of the materials from that are here, so if it's of use for people to have a a more detailed reference, you're very welcome to take those things away and look them up. There's a website where we have information, most um, in Spanish, but also quite a lot in English. So that's just in terms of background. And I think that, um, to kind of get, get on, if we needed any better illustration of the idea that memory politics is not or is not only politics about the past, this is it. Chile commemorated the 40, 40 years since the coup, 23 years since its return to formal democracy and 25 since the plebiscite that began that transitional process, just 12 weeks before it defines its immediate political future in the presidential elections of the end of this year. And those elections, rightly or wrongly, are seen as pitting the right-wing inheritors of the Pinochet project in the shape of the Alianza alliance against the centre-left, everyone-against-Pinochet alliance that was first formed at the end of the 80s and which held four consecutive presidencies since 1990 (coughs) until the current right-wing administration came in in 2010. So, you know, already a very kind of symbolically loaded... Um, thing, and the candidates that we have um, standing in this election, not the candidates we expected to see, the right has gone through three candidates in as many months, uh, are Michel Bachelet and Evelyn Matei. So we will have, yet again, the, well, at least the second female president of Chile in one way or another, but both daughters of Air Force generals. So Michel, Michel Bachelet for the Concertación Alliance, Evelyn Matei for the right-wing Alianza, both daughters of military men. Not only that, but, um, Michel Bachelet's father, who was tortured, tortured to death, a constitutionalist Air Force general to, um, who died as a result of, of torture received in the first weeks after the coup, someone who opposed the coup, in a case in which the father of Evelyn Matei, the right-wing candidate, has been repeatedly accused of having direct involvement. So really, this could not be a more, a more kind of um, graphic illustration of the fact that the past is not the past. And one of the first things that happened to me on this visit was I bumped into a colleague on the metro who said, you know when you were here and you always said to me that this business about Pinochet wasn't really about Pinochet and it was about today and how politics works and how they're just it and I didn't believe you well, well now I believe you. Mm-hmm. And there was this, this kind of sense that, that that yes, the past and the present were coming full circle and people who kind of thought this was not what politics in Chile was anymore about, I think I've seen that, that, that there is an overlay of, of the past that's still very much present. What... Well, Having, in spite of which, and I apologize, we have a, got a problem at the top here, one of the things we did for our report was to look on, at the platforms then and say, okay, this is the presidential election that coincides with the anniversary, so what are people saying about it? And the answer, six weeks before the uh, commemoration of the 11th of September, was absolutely nothing. No one the nine official presidential candidates declared at that period. None of them mentioned the 40th year, in, 40 year anniversary, and only one of them, Marcel Claude, made any specific reference, not only to past crimes and the dictatorship, but to the issue of human rights in general. So this was not one of the issues which, back in, in August, the candidates were, were talking about as marking the differences between their projects as, as in any way on the list of political priorities for the country, which, which may be, be perfectly reasonable. But it's the contrast between that and what happened just two or three weeks later that that I really want to point out, I think. The presidential press office was saying um, at the end of August, we, we called them every day saying what's happening, what are we up with the events, there were no commemorative activities for the 11th of September. There was to be no official commemoration two weeks before the event itself. And the president's diary is blank, so, so very much a kind of, you know, hands off, nothing, is, nothing has happened, nothing is about to happen. And if you look at the emblematic public spaces that are very much connected, some of the ones that Alan showed us, the Moneda and those spaces that are so evocative of the coup and all that went on, all of them, again at the end of August, were completely inaccessible and completely invisible. The Ministry of Defence, the Plaza de la Ciudadanía, one of Bachelet's legacy projects in front of the Moneda Palace, the citizenship square, kind of ironically enough, Moran de ochenta, which some of you will know the significance of, and all of the pedestrian accesses around the presidential palace, the symbol of the coup, the symbol of the place where ended died, were dug up, boarded off in in March, and were completely inaccessible. And these are public works that were supposed to happen back in 2012, but for some reason, in March uh, 2013, they finally materialised, and the visual message certainly was, was, keep your distance. This is not a place where anything's going to happen. The statue of Salvador Allende, which was installed in, in the square behind the uh, Moneda fairly recently, a few years ago, become of course a center of commemoration for the left, was shrouded in, it was wrapped in black plastic for most of August and in the early days of September, and no one could tell us, no one knew when or if the square would be opened and whether on the 11th of September it would even be accessible. So this was the scene on the 6th of September 2013. Here's the calle Morande, this is the emblematic street beside the Moneda Palace, where Allende's body was brought out on the um, 11th of September. It was the presidential access to the palace. So it's a very kind of iconic, a very well-known address. We'll see in a minute what was done with it on the 30th anniversary, but here's the 40th anniversary and modern days is all closed off. And here is Salvador Allende on the 6th of September 2013. He's <coughs> only there somewhere. This is the scene on Monaday itself on the 8th of September, so you still have no chance of getting anywhere near the presidential palace, so please don't come here on the 11th of September and do anything at all. And in terms of the contrast, in 2003, the 30th anniversary of the coup, then-president Ricardo Lagos held a solemn ceremony um, at which he took a solo perimeter walk around the outside of the palace and re-inaugurated this emblematic address, Monande Centa, the presidential access to the palace, <coughs> the first socialist president since Allende, becomes the first president to re-enter through this, this, this access door, and the statue of Allende presiding over and, and, and witnessing this terribly solemn moment. So quite a contrast with Monande 2013, where the messages are go around, please go the other way, please don't come here. And really, um, one had the sense, and it is very much an anecdotal sense, that, that the right, with the government was hoping that we could go to sleep on the 10th of September and wake up on the 12th of September and the 11th of September would somehow just all be over. So That combined with their, their insistence that there were to be no official activities whatsoever. But then it all started to happen. Things really did kick off. Um, first, one of the things was what came known as el desfile del perdon, so the kind of filing, the procession of people asking forgiveness. Everyone started apologizing for absolutely everything. I think everyone at this stage has apologized for the kill, other than the people who actually carried it out. Questions started to be asked then about the complicity and the fitness for office in the present day of figures who, really, up until that point, had been quite considered. Um, heroes of the transition, are very positive figures in the transitional story. And one early and high profile casualty was Juan Emilio Teire, the commander-in-chief of the army um, during the beginning of the, the 2000s, in 2004, was responsible for the closest thing you will get or got to an army apology of its own for its role in the human rights violations during the during the coup was uh, in August (coughs) 2013, is no longer president of the directive of the Electoral College of Chile. So the people who are presiding over and designing the system for the next presidential elections were being chaired by the former commander-in-chief of the army. And what happened to Chile was that um, Ernesto Lejdemann, who's a young man who was, well, not that young as my age, was orphaned, Ernesto Legeman was orphaned at two years old. His parents are um, victims victims of political execution in um, an incident which is well known about, in which Chady played a very secondary role. Okay. So Ernesto Lederman's parents were killed in Ernesto's presence, Ernesto, Ernesto at two years old. He was picked up by an army patrol, handed to the then colonel Honemi Chede, back at the um, army base, who was instructed to go and take him to the nearest orphanage. So he was handed over to the nuns, um, sent back to Buenos Aires, um, grew up um, under the care of his grandparents, discovered the whole story of his true origins um, about 10 years ago now, and began a case, began a criminal case uh, investigating the death of his parents. Ernesto Leggerman had always insisted that Cheyre had some role or had some information or really had a case to answer for his admittedly secondary role in the case and no one had taken any notice. This is an issue that since 2004, Ernesto Leggerman had been sending letters to the president's office to all kinds of authorities to the press visiting Chile regularly about the case and no one had really taken, but in this kind of very um, hothouse environment, this suddenly became the story of the moment. Cheyre and Leggerman were... um, placed together on a, a, a high-rating um, late-night um, talk show, and, and Cherry's performance there, he said that he didn't know anything, he didn't remember anything, he had never been curious about where this child came from, that he was just following orders, was basically, and admitted amongst other things that he had never read the Red Tick Truth Commission report. And this collection of events really led to his position as director of the Electoral College becoming untenable, and he resigned subsequently from that position. He didn't resign from the, the board, interestingly. He just resigned as president of the board. And one of the things he said, in spite of the fact that he did resign, I feel that I am beyond all legal or ethical reproach. So still insisting that he really had nothing to apologize for, and yet California, the rector of the, the UDP, um, call him, call him in El Mercurio, which probably finally... Um, some cheaters' possibilities of hanging on, saying, Behaviour that is not actually criminal is not necessarily ethical. What sort of people do we want overseeing our democratic institutions? Is a former army commander with this kind of past really the best person we can come up with at this (coughs) stage of the transition to guide our democratic political future? So these broader questions, which don't have directly to do necessarily with criminal responsibility, that really have been stepped away from, I think, throughout most of the transition, starting to be heard. So it's not any more about direct responsibility, it's about who do we want to guide the the democratic future. Do we really still have to continue to make the kinds of compromises that up until now have been felt necessary or just we have become accustomed to, I think. Other things going on, Just moving on to the attention of time, a little bit of rebranding. The street, a street known as the 11th of September, La Calle Once September in Providencia, an uptown district of Santiago, reverts to its old name of Nueva Providencia. The more eagle-eyed among you will spot that the company in charge didn't appear either to be um, either not well prepared or not completely convinced by the change. They produced new street signs that read Nueva Providencia and all had to be replaced um, yet again. But the official name of the street. There is no longer now in the capital, one of the main arteries of the capital, a street that commemorates the king. Um That was done under the presidency of a, a specific local mayor. That wasn't a national central political decision, and yet it's, it's one of the things that was happening around the anniversary, but only some rebranding. So here we still have, down in Patagonia, in La Junta, I was absolutely amazed to come across this a couple of years ago and it is still there. Carretera Austral, so the the, the long um, Patagonian highway that reaches, stretches down to the south the is still proudly named for General Augusto Pinochet. Yeah. And the occasional mixed message. Um, great, thank you. So on the 8th of September um, the police Caravinedos came along and removed this series of... Um, yes, I don't even know how to say that in English, I'm sorry. Uh, banners, um, which alluding directly to all of the issues that had come out around Chávez's denial that he or the army as an institution had any more information or any more knowledge about anything at all. So where they disappeared, you know, the Pact, the, the silence, pact of Silence must be broken. Police came along in the mid- in the early hours of the morning, tore these things down and threw them into the portrait, at which point it became uh, apparent that this was an artistic project that was being fully licensed and authorized by the Council yeah. for National Monument <laughs> and the two local district mayors. Not only that, it had been paid for it with public art funds. The... Um, Spokesman for the presidential palace said that, of course, they had no knowledge of this, and, and if, if people were going to get authorization for these kinds of things, they really ought to let the authorities know that they had, or after they had got the authorization, which seemed a rather circular argument. So they were kind of shot themselves in the foot a little bit with that one. And at this point, I, I didn't mean to cut Camila's head off, I'm sorry, he's, he's not cut off in my, my version of this, the tide began to turn. And it really, again, one advertised says that Pineda had been kind of holding his finger up to the wind, and the wind was starting to say, this cannot be ignored, and in fact, you really had better come out and say something quite decisive about it. At which point, three days, well, four or five days perhaps before the actual anniversary of announces that yes, there will be an official event, not only that, he then roundly criticises the other candidates for not accepting the invitation to it because they have their own events organised, and began to denounce the press and the courts and all kinds of other people as passive accomplices of the dictatorship. Reminds everyone that he voted no in the plebiscite of 88, something that cannot be said for the present candidate, Matei, who proudly recognises that she voted yes and would do it again tomorrow. And now what starts to open is really a gap between two um, factions of the right, as much as between right and left. And Piñera said, on the the end of August, and here on the 11th of September itself, these very strong statements, which we really are quite surprising in their origin, in coming from Piñera, the coup was followed by grave, repeated and systematic violations, something which we all have a duty to condemn in the strongest possible terms. This may seem unexceptional, but to have Piñera saying this is actually quite something. We must do everything in our power, he then said, to provide truth and reparations for victims. You notice he didn't use the term justice. At which point Bachelet got in on the act and the presidential candidate who was tipped to win, who had no uh, mention in her platform until this moment of this issue, her spokeswoman Cameron Hertz told us that, oh no, in fact the campaign team has had a human rights commission hard at work all along, it's just that they hadn't got around to announcing their proposals. Another obligation for the president, remember she is not yet the president, she is the candidate, will be to derogate the amnesty decree law. That all sounds marvellous, except when you remember that this was a promise that Bachelet explicitly made back in 2006 when the Inter-American Court verdict that demands it came out. So it wasn't done in that first four-year presidential term, and yet Bachelet is now feeling obliged to say that of course it will be one of the first things she will do um, when, when she is elected. The Supreme Court had to show willing, this says, what about this? What about the Supreme Court, when are they going to say sorry? So they did finally do so, although the spokesman couldn't resist throwing in that they were right to support the crew and that sentences for crimes against humanity should be lenient. So, so still a kind of reluctance there. Just a couple more um, things to go and I will stop. Um, but this, this is where it was all heading. And then, um, some kind of um, wildcard things that happened. Up here on the right is Orlanian Mena, who some of you will know as the head of the CNI, the the political police, really, rather than secret, nothing secret about it, that replaced the Dina in 1978. He's supposed to be in prison, and yet here he is snapped wandering around uh, one of the uptown Santiago shopping malls, out shopping with his wife. He was snapped by a former um, survivor, a former prisoner, who 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 bumped into him in the supermarket aisle, a real kind of ariel door from a moment of coming face-to-face with your torture. Not only that, someone who this man had reason to know was supposed to be in prison. Um, And Contreras, Manuel Contreras, the notorious head of the DINA secret police, really the emblematic kind of perpetrator in all of this, who has more than 100 years of sentences, um, Currently against him, gave an unauthorized press interview from prison. He he decided that if everyone was going to be giving out their opinions for the 40th of well, of course he couldn't do any less. And he summoned the press to his rather nice cabin that he has in his military installation, which really doesn't look terribly like a prison. And and gave his views and explained that he had had no bad conscience whatsoever. He would be going straight to heaven. And um, explained that in the uh, in the Cordillera prison where he is held, and he used he does this when he calls it a prison, there are 40 prison guards here for 10 of us prisoners, their job is to wait on me. So this kind of extremely soberbio kind of um, um, interview that he gave, this was really a step too far and Piñera a couple of days later did something that I for one never expected Piñera would be the one to do and announced the closure of the Cordillera prison. So this is one of the prisons where 10 of the 60 former military, currently in prison for human rights violations, were being held. It was built by the Constitution in 2004 as a special concession, it was one of the things the military demanded. In order that they deign to serve their sentences at all, they want these special facilities. So Pinera said that's enough, Poncheras is, is, is crazy, no one should be paying any notice attention to him, why are these people giving him interviews and closing it? And said, these Pinochetistas don't know how to live in a democracy. So again, nothing too exceptional, but to have the right-wing president being the one to say all of this, really left Bachelet kind of somewhat on the sidelines. And at that point, I think, and I I will finish here, I think Pinera played a very bold hand, and there's a lot here about how he is positioned within the right-wing Alianza. He really drew a line in the sand, and said, here is the modern democratic right, re-electable, maybe, 2017, who will be the right-wing candidate, they're really not doing a very good job of producing um, obvious successes in that role. And over here are the dinosaurs, over here are the pinachatistas, the ones who still kind of beat that drum, and I am not one Remember, I voted no in the plebiscite, I voted no in the plebiscite, think about me. And I think that's a very bold gamble, because Pinyone has not been a strong figure within that, 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 that alliance. And clearly it's, it's a gamble about his political, personal political future. But it's also one of the things, when, when, when the right-wing government came in, some people said, oh, this is dreadful, we're going backwards, and we said, what better? than that the 40th anniversary should be presided over by a right-wing government because this is the perfect opportunity to dismantle this historic kind of patrimonialisation of human rights by the left. So if we can break this historical accident which says ideologically the right, anyone on the right in Chile, the modern right, the democratic right, the old guard right, just has an allergic reaction to the whole concept of a rights-based citizenship, then we're not going to move forward. So this is possibly a moment where that will happen. Whether the right, is, which is currently in some disarray, is, is best placed to take up that invitation, I think is what the subsequent presidential period will, will, will show. It's clear that there will be an opposition. With some luck, we'll see that internally within the, the, the right-wing alliance, this is the, 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 the wing, whether under Pinheiro or not, that will, that will eventually gain some, some ascendancy.
0: Thank, thank, you thank you very much, Kat. Um, continuing our, our tour of English accents, uh, Scott <laughs> so it's, uh Thank you
2: for the invitation. Um, as I was coming up here, I thought, um, well, I have more professional friends at Oxford than I do any place in the world except Notre Dame and possibly the University of Texas, so it's great to be here. Um, I am a commentator, so I'll be probably a little bit briefer than the first two. I I did want to begin with just a personal reflection. Um, I was a 19-year-old little kid, you know, um, when the 1973 coup took place, and as a personal testimony to what Alan was mentioning about the huge impact of the coup, I remember some days after the coup, attending a panel at Yale University with the room that was six times bigger than this and every bit as crowded. There were hundreds of people crammed into this room. That's the kind of impact that the Chilean coup had across many countries, many geographies, many different ideological divides. Um, so it was nothing short of stunning. It led later to the um, church report, uh, one of the most famous reports issued by the US Congress. It was a seminal event in the United States in pushing some sectors to rethink foreign policy. Uh, obviously had a big impact, as Alan mentioned, on the European left as well. So um, let me begin by uh, mentioning a few things of, about Alan's paper. I had the benefit of, of reading the paper um, it's, it's always a pleasure to read Alan's work. Um, Cass said that he's the most important um, uh, English-speaking um, political scientist who studied Chile, and I think that's right, um, unless you want to have a quibble at the margins. And what makes this all the mo- all the more remarkable to me, I'm kind of a data junkie and a geography junkie, so I looked up the travel distance from London to Santiago 7,248 miles, right? I mean, to be the best person studying Chile um, from that kind of distance is nothing short of of stunning. Um, The paper is very interesting, as you heard, it gives a panoptic view of of some of the multiple dimensions of... some of the multiple international dimensions involved in the Chilean coup and if I could invoke the name of one other person here at Oxford, um, you know, until, really until 1986, at least political scientists thought very little about international dimensions of regimes and regime change, and of course Lawrence Whitehead was a seminal thinker in in, uh, beginning to help us think through some of the international dimensions about political regimes. Um, I just wanted to maybe reinforce a few things that Alan said in agreement with him about why the Chilean coup attracted so, su- such extraordinary attention. I'm not sure that this is true. I think it is, but what I heard, uh, what I've heard for many decades and beginning 19, the early 1970s was that Salvador Allende was the first democratically elected Marxist president. And so I I was trying to recall, as I prepared my notes for this talk, uh, a very interesting French movie about a French, you know, industrialist who every day the first thing he does was look at what's happening in Chile. Um, And and so this, because it was the Via Chilena al Socialismo, the effort to construct democratic socialism, Right? I mean this really galvanized world attention especially in the rest of Latin America and in Europe. Um, There were very intense debates across certainly the Western world and probably into the Soviet world as well about the viability of peaceful electoral ways to construct socialism. Um, Another thing, another point um, about this, you know, which Alan also mentioned, was this was the height of the Cold War and the huge attention that Chile, that Chile got in those years is unthinkable, of course, outside that context. The stakes um, for the United States but also for Europe seemed very high. Um, Kissinger and Nixon turned their eyes to Chile even before Salvador Allende Um, assumed office that is the um, you know the I guess it was I'm not sure what foreign office I think it might have been the CIA tried to bribe some members of the Chilean Congress to vote against Allende when the election was thrown to the Congress. Um, The other thing that I wanted to mention on this point of why Chile um, attracted so much attention was that there were already intense debates in at least two venues outside of Latin America about um, uh, the, the, the left uh, and uh, and U.S. foreign policy. So the European left was already engaged in a in, in the process of rethinking what it was to be the left. <clears throat> this was now, um, you know, a decade and a half after uh, Khrushchev denounced Stalin And so, Chile was a really important um, act on the world stage in rethinking what it was to be left on the left. And this was the year that the, the U.S. left Vietnam. There was a groundswell of opposition among liberals and centrists in the U.S. to the kind of foreign policy that the U.S. had conducted And Chile was a really important part, a really important moment. That is, um, you know, the US, U.S. liberals and some centrists were outraged about what the U.S. had done in Chile. So there was this groundswell that three years later helped lead to the victory of Jimmy Carter, and to what I think was a very profound rethinking of U.S. foreign policy, with some oscillations, of course, from Carter on. Um, I wanted to say something about the legacy of the coup. I I agree completely with Alan that the legacy has been very long-lasting. Chilean electoral uh, electoral politics is still very profoundly influenced by this divide. But curiously, in another sense, um, uh, of course, and this is an obvious point I think, but one that should be made, um, the aftermath and the response to the coup was such that um, today there's much greater moderation. So on the one hand, um, the divide between Pinochetistas and the aftermath on the one hand, and those who opposed Pinochet, remains very active in electoral politics. Uh, on the other hand, you know, the left and center, m- much of the left and center, went back and rethought, okay, what didn't work in the Allende years? And, of course, this pushed the, the socialists and what is now the PPD um, to a, fairly profound rethinking of their policies. Um, and so in some important ways that divide between the left uh, and the right is much narrower than it was some time back, um, certainly in the 60s and the, and the, and the 70s. <coughs> um, Kath, um, this is an amazing report from the field. Um, incredibly well crafted, very interesting. Um, I had not heard about Piñera's uh, statements and they are amazing. They're really interesting. and they show that part of the Chilean right has or is distancing itself, distancing itself very significantly from the Pinochet past. Um, the one other thing that really caught my attention in this um, you know, fascinating report from the field is what was the opposition thinking? That they did not begin this process of politicizing the 40th anniversary, right? I mean, you would have thought that both normatively and strategically this was an opportunity that they should have taken advantage of. Sometimes the the normative and strategic issues work against each other, but in this case they would have worked perfectly together, they would have complemented each other perfectly, apparently, and yet they didn't pick up the ball. I wonder if you or anyone else would care to comment on that. Um, Anyhow, it is great to be here with you, and I look forward to the discussion.